Chapter Four, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Republican Rally, Part Two. The President at this time further exposed himself to a hot fire of criticism from his former supporters, the Independents and Civil Service Reformers he himself had not altered his mind as to the value of the merit system but in practice the various departments had departed from his theory there was a general relaxation of principle all along the line a reformed civil service had become more and more unpopular among leading democrats in the senate the leaders of the president's party were openly hostile to him on this issue senator vance of north carolina senator pugh of alabama and senator beck of kentucky took the lead in this opposition within the party few of the democratic senators liked mr cleveland personally note nineteen page one forty seven senator vance even made an effort to have the appropriation for the civil service commission discontinued he failed in this but the attempt seems to have nettled mr cleveland and to have called out in him a certain petulance which was one of the noticeable traits of his character giving way to this mood he let things take their course for a while with the result that removals and appointments were made by his subordinates from strictly partisan motives the most conspicuous instance of this was found in the post-office department mr adlai e stevenson of illinois had been made first assistant postmaster-general he was an old-school democrat a thorough believer in the spoils system and he now set to work unchecked to sweep republicans out of office in the political slang of the time thousands of heads fell into the basket and democrats all over the country wrote and uttered panegyrics on adlai and his acts had mr cleveland allowed these removals early in his term he would at least have won the gratitude of his own party leaders had he stood fast by the principle of reform he would have kept his hold upon the independents as it turned out however he had yielded too late to propitiate the former while the latter were rabid in their denunciation of him mr stephenson won all the party applause while the president received all the mugwumps abuse mr hale of maine laid before the senate a table showing the changes in office effected during two years of the cleveland administration a part of it may be quoted as illustrative offices fourth class postmasters number fifty two thousand six hundred nine changes forty thousand presidential postmasters number two thousand three hundred seventy nine changes two thousand foreign ministers number thirty three changes thirty two secretaries of legation number twenty one changes sixteen collectors of customs number one hundred eleven changes one hundred surveys of customs number thirty two changes all naval officers six changes all internal revenue collectors number eighty five changes eighty four district attorneys number seventy changes sixty five territorial judges number thirty changes twenty two territorial governors eight changes all local land offices two hundred twenty four changes one hundred ninety years afterward in speaking of this time to a personal friend mr cleveland said with much feeling you know the things in which i yielded but no one save myself can ever know the things which i resisted 
the president had the misfortune to alienate the sympathies of the press at large he had always had a dislike for the newspapers possibly because of the manner in which he had been attacked by them in eighteen eighty four and perhaps also because of the journalistic discourtesy which had been shown him at the time of his marriage this dislike he took little pains to hide the washington correspondents the elite of the profession declared that he had snubbed them at public functions on december twelfth eighteen eighty five he wrote a letter to mr joseph kepler the editor of puck in which he said among other things i don't think there ever was a time when newspaper lying was so general and so mean as at present and there never was a country under the sun where it flourished as it does in this the falsehoods daily spread before the people in our newspapers while they are proofs of the mental ingenuity of those engaged in newspaper work are insults to the american love of decency and fair play of which we boast on july twenty fifth eighteen eighty six he addressed another letter to mr c h jones an editor in jacksonville florida in which he said i am surprised that newspaper talk should be so annoying to you who ought so well to understand the utter and complete recklessness and falsification in which they so generally indulge again in the speech which he made at the harvard banquet november eighth eighteen eighty six he spoke of the silly mean and cowardly lies that every day are found in the columns of certain newspapers which violate every instinct of american manliness and in ghoulish glee desecrate every sacred relation of private life the newspapers certainly did their best to justify these strictures pretty nearly every public or private act of president cleveland was misrepresented and made to appear in a light that was either unfavorable or ludicrous when he went fishing on memorial day this was interpreted by the press as a studied insult to the memory of the union dead when secretary manning lay ill of the malady from which he soon after died it was reported that mr cleveland never sent to inquire after his condition but rather ostentatiously went down the river to attend a dinner given by a duck shooting club when the president made a short journey to the middle west delivering occasional speeches on the way the new york sun at once asserted that all of these speeches had been compiled sometimes word for word from an encyclopedia the same paper professed to believe that miss cleveland had written her brother's messages to congress and that his famous phrases offensive partisans pernicious activity innocuous desuetude and ghoulish glee had been coined by her reports were printed to the effect that the president had quarrelled with his sister because she had published a book and that she had left the white house because she disapproved of his marriage three newspapers the new york tribune the sun and the washington critic took to inventing imaginary dialogues between the president and the members of his household including his private secretary colonel daniel s lamont these dialogues were for the most part stupid and rather silly but they were widely copied by the press throughout the country and they annoyed the president far more than might have been supposed one of the earliest of them shows fairly well a purpose to perpetuate the notion that the president's tastes were rather primitive servant to mr cleveland the cook wants to know sir what you will have for dinner sir mr cleveland isn't miss cleveland in servant she dines out sir mr cleveland oh yes i had forgotten that dinner let me see rose dines out and dan is at old point comfort good enough we'll have pig's feet fried onions and a bottle of extra dry another published at the time of congressional elections derived its point from the spoilsman's assertion that mr cleveland was no democrat daniel 
remarked the president this morning as he sat at his desk with two or three political almanacs and several tables of last year's figures spread out before him yes sire replied daniel who was pasting an editorial from the new york times into the presidential scrapbook the election is in progress to-day i believe yes sire i remember it because i have five hundred dollars on it daniel yes sire do you think we shall win daniel we oui, sire inquired daniel upsetting the paste-pot on the scrap-book i said we oui, daniel to whom do you refer by we oui, sire the democratic party of course daniel said the president a little sharply oh and daniel slapped the scrap-book shut and went out of the room with pernicious activity which surprised and shocked the president toward the close of eighteen eighty seven both parties began to look forward to the presidential contest of the following year in spite of all the uproar that had been raised over the president's pension vetoes and over his partial failure as a reformer of the civil service the republicans felt that they had no genuine issue upon which to make a strong appeal to the country the people as a whole seemed very well satisfied with the president and while they recognized his mistakes they had come to admire his sturdy independence on the other hand although the democratic leaders personally disliked him because they found him hard to manage and exceedingly plain-spoken there was really no other candidate possible for the party the congressional elections of eighteen eighty six showed a slight falling off in the democratic vote but the party still retained control of the house while the senate was almost evenly divided if the president acted with discretion so his friends told him and precipitated no new issue he might be fairly certain of a re-election the republicans were secretly depressed the theory of their invincibility had been shattered in eighteen eighty four and they had no great confidence in their immediate future mr blaine was in europe his health was said to be very bad the party lacked at once a leader and an issue if the democrats raised no new question their prospect of success seemed good but the president would not take advice he had made up his mind that something must be done with regard to the national finances for the coming year it was estimated that the surplus in the treasury would be in round figures one hundred forty million dollars that so much money should be withdrawn from general circulation and locked up in the treasury seemed to him certain to disturb business to diminish the circulating medium of the people and at the same time to offer a perpetual temptation to extravagance in congress inasmuch as this huge surplus wholly unnecessary for the needs of the government was due to the operation of the tariff he made up his mind that the tariff ought to be revised in this he was only following good republican precedent general garfield in a speech of july thirteenth eighteen sixty eight had declared that there must be a rational and considerate adjustment of the tariff president grant in his message to congress in december eighteen seventy four had said those articles which enter into our manufactures and are not produced at home should be entered free a republican tariff commission appointed by president arthur in eighteen eighty one had in its report recommended a substantial reduction of existing duties the commission advised such a reduction to the extent of an average of twenty per cent finally the republican national platform of eighteen eighty four had specifically pledged the party to correct the inequalities of the tariff and to reduce the surplus president cleveland therefore prepared a message which he purposed to transmit to congress at the opening of its session in december departing from an unbroken line of precedent he resolved to devote his entire message to the single subject of tariff reform his intimate friends to whom he disclosed this purpose were aghast 
they thoroughly believed in the measure which he advocated but they told him that the time was inopportune the presidential election was at hand the message would be styled by the republicans a free trade document the protected manufacturers would be alarmed the people would not understand to send such a message at this time would mean the loss of the election mr cleveland however stood firm he admitted that the election might be lost but he said that he had a duty to perform and that it must be performed regardless of any personal consequences to himself it is more important to the country that this message should be delivered to congress and the people than that i should be elected president note twenty page one fifty three the message would at least give to the party and the people a living issue for the future and one which would ultimately lead to victory congress met on december sixth and the message was transmitted to it after speaking of the condition of the treasury the president went on to recommend a reduction of the duties on raw materials and especially upon wool a recommendation which had been made by president grant in eighteen seventy four toward the close of the message occurred the following sentences our progress toward a wise conclusion will not be improved by dwelling upon the theories of protection and free trade this savors too much of bandying epithets it is a condition which confronts us not a theory the reading of this message created an immense sensation the republicans now felt that they had a fighting chance the democrats on the other hand saw that their one prospect of success lay in accepting the doctrine of the president in closing up their ranks and in presenting a united front the party lines were very closely drawn the word was passed that democrats who would not speak and vote for tariff reform were no longer to be considered members of the party a tariff measure was introduced in the house by mr roger q mills of texas it removed the duty upon raw wool and made other changes intended to reduce the annual customs revenue by some fifty million dollars the average reduction in the tariff contemplated by this bill was seven per cent or less by half than the reduction proposed by the republican commission of eighteen eighty one the house of representatives passed the mills bill by a party vote the senate proposed as a substitute a bill reducing the duty on sugar by one-half and repealing altogether the internal revenue tax upon tobacco republicans intimated that they were willing to abolish the internal revenue taxes entirely rather than lower the custom duties debate waxed hot the republican proposal was jeered at by the democrats they said that it meant free whiskey and free tobacco while their own proposal simply meant free wool the republicans retorted with the alarm cry of free trade and the destruction of american industries the battle for the next presidency was already on there was a general feeling among the republicans that mr blaine was entitled to receive the nomination no other candidate could make so strong an appeal to his own party and there was felt besides a great deal of sympathy with him because of his defeat in eighteen eighty four it was believed that the old charges against him would no longer affect the masses of his party mr blaine however on january twenty fifth eighteen eighty eight addressed a letter from florence italy to the chairman of the republican national committee saying that because of considerations entirely personal to myself his name would not be presented at the next national convention many were unwilling to accept this as a final withdrawal but a second letter from paris to mr whitelaw reed may seventeenth made it practically certain that mr blaine was out of the running 
putting him aside the names most often heard as of probable candidates were those of senator john sherman of ohio for whom a number of southern states presently instructed their delegates to vote mr walter q gresham of illinois general russell a alger of michigan and ex-senator benjamin harrison of indiana the democratic convention met at st louis on june fifth eighteen eighty eight and nominated mr cleveland by acclamation an honor not previously given to a democratic candidate since jackson's time as the nomination was uncontested the proceedings were unusually tame and lacking in incident for the vice-presidency the nomination went to mr allen g thurman of ohio judge thurman was an old-fashioned democrat who had been a senator and whose popularity in the west was reckoned upon to carry the doubtful state of indiana it was thought possible too that he might succeed in his own state of ohio which had given mr blaine a rather small majority at the last election judge thurman was a somewhat picturesque figure in politics and was popularly styled the old roman but he was now advanced in years feeble in health and belonged wholly to the past the average voter knew little about him except that he was in the habit of carrying and frequently brandishing a large red bandana a fact which gave point to a remark made by senator riddleberger of virginia soon after the convention someone asked the senator what he thought of the nomination for the vice-presidency think said he why i think that you've simply nominated a pocket-handkerchief the republican convention met in chicago on june nineteenth it was not until the third day and after seven ballots that it chose its candidate senator sherman led with a vote of two hundred forty nine out of eight hundred thirty gradually however his following fell away while that of general alger and of mr harrison increased mr sherman afterwards declared that the southern delegates who had been instructed for him were brought over by the alger interest if so alger did not profit by the bargain after the third ballot general harrison's vote rapidly grew until at last he obtained a clear majority mr sherman charged that this was due to a secret and corrupt arrangement made with a member of the new york delegation presumably mr thomas c platt and that friends of mr harrison had made pledges on his behalf in order to secure the new york delegates note twenty one page one fifty seven for the vice-presidency the convention nominated mr levi p morton a new york banker who had served a term in congress and had been united states minister to france mr harrison was descended from governor benjamin harrison of virginia a signer of the declaration of independence and was the grandson of president william henry harrison by profession he was a lawyer and he had served in the civil war under general sherman he was an excellent public speaker a man of unblemished character and a citizen of the state of indiana the vote of which was thought to be necessary to republican success the campaign was comparatively a quiet one no bitter personalities marred it the contest turned mainly upon the issue presented by mr cleveland in his tariff message the republican canvass was conducted with a feeling akin to desperation speakers sought to alarm the manufacturing interests by the cry of british free trade and in this they were successful large sums of money flowed into the campaign treasury and were spent like water it was in this campaign that the old-time torchlight processions were generally given up political clubs were organized in their place and did effective work as in the harrison campaign of eighteen forty party songs were sung to stimulate enthusiasm and at all republican meetings this crude minstrelsy held an important place there was something almost fanatical in the spirit with which the republicans strove for victory they were not very hopeful 
yet all that unlimited money and careful organization could do for them was done the people at large admired the courage with which president cleveland had raised an issue of principle even when it jeopardized his own political prospects early in october it seemed quite certain that in addition to the solid vote of southern states he could count upon that of connecticut and new jersey the only two states that were really doubtful and that were needed to re-elect him were indiana and new york both parties recognized this fact and the supreme efforts of each were concentrated upon these two states as mr harrison was a citizen of indiana he was thought on the whole to have the better chance but the republicans left nothing to mere luck they proceeded to pour great sums of money into indiana and to arrange quite openly a scheme for the purchase of voters on an elaborate scale a letter said to have been written by mr w w dudley the treasurer of the national republican committee and unquestionably emanating from that committee was sent to the party leaders in indiana it contained the following memorable sentence divide the floaters into blocks of five and put a trusted man in charge of these five with the necessary funds and make him responsible that none get away and that all vote our ticket in new york which was president cleveland's own state he might have looked for a majority had the political conditions there not been peculiar a large number of democrats who represented the tilden wing of the party were very hostile to mr cleveland they accused him of gross ingratitude to tilden according to their story mr cleveland's nomination in eighteen eighty four was due to mr tilden's favor they asserted that in june eighteen eighty four daniel manning had gone to mr tilden and had asked for his aid promising in return to give to mr tilden any assurances he required in regard to the naming of mr cleveland's cabinet should he be elected note twenty two page one fifty nine after mr cleveland became president he neglected to consult mr tilden until every cabinet place but one had been filled he then asked mr tilden to advise him as to the appointment of a secretary of the treasury on mr tilden's recommendation mr manning was appointed he found himself however in an unfriendly atmosphere as his letters to tilden show he wrote december twenty one eighteen eighty five i am living in an atmosphere that is full of mischief and where the world is so great that one is inclined sometimes to doubt whether he comprehends his associates or fully understands anything of what he is about it is quite evident that tilden had hoped as mr bigelow expresses it that the cleveland administration would be a continuation of the tilden dynasty with mr tilden himself as the power behind the throne one can scarcely blame the president if he resented this assumption of control though he might doubtless have been more tactful in declaring his independence practically however he proscribed all of mr tilden's friends he ignored mr tilden's recommendations and he made mr manning feel that he was regarded with unfriendliness because of his relations with tilden between the president and such a man as mr tilden indeed there could be in any case little real sympathy they had no more natural affinity than has a mastiff with a fox and the result of this temperamental antipathy was an unfortunate one for mr cleveland when secretary manning finally left the cabinet in eighteen eighty six his friends felt that he had been greatly injured note twenty three page one sixty and his death which soon after followed was even ascribed to the harshness with which the president had treated him consequently in new york there were many democrats who were not unwilling to punish the president by helping to defeat him at the polls 
even so staunch a democrat as mr a s hewitt then mayor of new york let his long friendship for mr tilden estrange him from the present leader of his party whom he had cordially supported in eighteen eighty four i shall not make a speech nor spend a dollar in the campaign said he cleveland is no statesman and i don't believe in his re-election note twenty four page one sixty tammany hall was also disaffected its leaders had never liked mr cleveland and they had come to like him even less as it happened too there now arose in new york politics a personality which sought to profit by democratic dissension when mr cleveland became president he had resigned the governorship of new york the lieutenant governor succeeded him this was mr david bennett hill a sublimated type of the practical politician mr hill had regarded mr cleveland's efforts to reform the civil service as disloyal to the democratic party he posed as being a partisan through and through and was fond of uttering in public addresses the emphatic declaration i am a democrat significantly intimating that the president was not mr hill was now a candidate for governor and he or his friends for him appeared to have entered into an alliance with the republicans under an arrangement by which democratic votes were to be cast for mr harrison in exchange for republican votes to be given to mr hill the campaign in new york had in consequence some peculiar features flags bearing the words harrison and hill were displayed all over the state meetings were held and were addressed by speakers who urged the election of hill and said nothing about cleveland on the whole the democratic prospects in new york grew more and more unfavorable toward the end of october the republicans prepared and executed a genuine coup mr cleveland's tariff position had been described by the campaign orators as essentially pro-british it was difficult however to represent mr cleveland as a partisan of england for in dealing with the canadian fisheries question he had urged congress to pass measures which would have brought the country within appreciable distance of a war with great britain hence the republicans resorted to a trick to place the president in a false light on this issue on september fourth eighteen eighty eight a letter dated at pomona california was addressed to sir lionel sackville west the british minister at washington this letter which was signed charles f murchison but which was actually written by a man named osgoodby purported to come from an englishman naturalized in the united states and asked sir lionel for information as to whether mr cleveland's policy toward canada was sincere and whether he was not at heart a friend of england the following sentences very artfully framed deserve quotation i am unable to understand for whom i shall cast my ballot when but one month ago i was sure that mr cleveland was the man if cleveland was pursuing a new policy toward canada temporarily only and for the sake of obtaining popularity and the continuation of his office for four years more but intends to cease his policy when his re-election in november is secured and again favour england's interest then i should have no further doubt but go forward and vote for him i know of no one better able to direct me sir and most respectfully ask your advice in the matter mr harrison is a high-tariff man a believer on the american side of all questions and undoubtedly an enemy to british interests generally as you know whether mr cleveland's policy is temporary only and whether he will as soon as he secures another term of four years in the presidency suspend it for one of friendship and free trade i apply to you privately and confidentially for information which shall in turn be treated as entirely secret 
such information would put me at rest myself and if favourable to mr cleveland enable me on my own responsibility to assure many of my countrymen that they would do england a service by voting for cleveland and against the republican system of tariff to this letter sir lionel sackville west was indiscreet enough to make the following reply sir i am in receipt of your letter of the fourth instant and beg to say that i fully appreciate the difficulty in which you find yourself in casting your vote you are probably aware that any political party which openly favoured the mother country at the present moment would lose popularity and that the party in power is fully aware of the fact the party however is i believe still desirous of maintaining friendly relations with great britain and still desirous of settling all questions with canada which have been unfortunately reopened since the restriction of the treaty by the republican majority in the senate and by the president's message to which you allude all allowances must therefore be made for the political situation as regards the presidential election thus created it is however impossible to predict the course which president cleveland may pursue in the matter of retaliation should he be elected but there is every reason to believe that while upholding the position he has taken he will manifest a spirit of conciliation in dealing with the question involved in his message i enclose an article from the new york times of august twenty second and remain yours faithfully l s sackville west the republicans held back this correspondence until october twenty fourth when they published it both in the newspapers and in millions of handbills a shout went up that mr cleveland was now undoubtedly the british candidate sir lionel's letter was interpreted as meaning that the president was especially friendly to british interests that his apparently rigorous attitude toward canada was adopted solely for electioneering purposes and that in case of his re-election he would pursue a very different policy mr blaine who had now returned from europe in improved health went about addressing great gatherings of irish-american voters and using everywhere the murchison letter as a text president cleveland at first paid no attention to this matter and was obviously disposed to treat it with contemptuous silence but his party managers insisted that something should be done to neutralize the effect of the letter a telegram informed him that the irish vote is slipping out of our hands because of diplomatic shilly-shallying see lamont at once something ought to be done to-day the clamour increased and president cleveland then showed the one and only trace of weakness that can be detected throughout his whole career to gain votes he demanded that the british government recall its minister lord salisbury demurred naturally enough he did not see why the diplomatic relations of the two countries should be strained because of the exigencies of an american political campaign thereupon the president ordered that sir lionel's passports be given him and he left washington soon after note twenty five page one sixty four had this action been taken so soon as the murchison letter was published it might have saved some votes had no action at all been taken the president's dignity and his reputation for political courage would not have been impaired as it was he had obviously yielded to expediency and therefore he gained nothing whatsoever at the election mr harrison won by a majority of sixty-five electoral votes he carried both indiana and new york though in the latter state mr hill was elected governor note twenty six page one sixty four cleveland carried the south and also new jersey and connecticut the republicans were successful in the congressional elections having a majority of ten in the next house 
an analysis of the vote showed that mr cleveland had been defeated by a very narrow margin even in mr harrison's own state he had come within two thousand votes of a majority and had obviously lost new york only through the treachery of his own party in the popular vote as against mr harrison he had a majority of over one hundred thousand ballots the sentiment of the country as a whole therefore still seemed to be on his side but the victorious republicans in their rejoicing took small account of these considerations they had won and they believed that their party had come back to stay they spoke of mr cleveland as of one politically dead on the night before the inauguration of mr harrison washington was filled with civic and military organizations which had come to celebrate the glorious victory late in the evening a motley crowd proceeded to the grounds of the white house the windows of the executive mansion were darkened as though to symbolize defeat then the crowd of revellers composed of marching clubs drunken militiamen and hooligans of the city lifted up their voices and chanted in discordant tones the ditty which had been most popular of all in the late campaign down in the cornfield hear that mournful sound all the democrats are weeping grovers in the cold cold ground End of chapter 4